Hello and welcome to the Fire Podcast. I'm Ryan Rhodes. On today's episode, rain manifesting inside the church revealed more than just God's glory. Swimming with sharks, hanging with Disney characters, and preaching the gospel in unlikely places. And can the story of Daniel give us insight in how to walk out our beliefs today? Bill has been a pastor for over 25 years. He grew up on the missions field, traveling all over the world and seeing thousands impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bill and his wife, Tracy, currently travel, speaking in conferences and churches around the world. In addition, he is the host of the Reckless Grace podcast, author of the book Reckless Grace, co-author with his wife, Tracy, of The Four People You Marry, and creator of the Quantum Preaching Masterclass. I love Bill Vanderbush. He has been such a great friend to my wife and I. I've gotten to see him. Uh, I've actually stayed at his house several times. I've gotten to see him as a husband, as a father, as a leader. Uh, he's such a man of integrity. I can't say enough about him. And you guys will see why I love him so much uh, as you listen to this podcast. Now, I did have a lot of audio issues, unfortunately, with this podcast, and still am, actually. I went to record another podcast and had some issues, um, so I'm currently trying to troubleshoot some things. You might notice uh, here or there some issues. For the most part, I got this cleaned up, and it sounds pretty good, um, but this podcast was worth worth the, the hassle of trying to do all of that, so I hope you enjoy it. Uh, If this podcast has impacted you, would you consider giving a one-time or monthly gift of support? You can do that by going to firemovement.com slash support. Once again, that's firemovement.com slash support. There you can give a one-time or monthly gift. Uh, Also, please share this with your friends. Share it on your social media. Uh, That will help get the word out. And then on any app that you follow us on, whether it's YouTube or one of the podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, make sure you follow, subscribe, and then if it has an option to leave us a rating, make sure you leave us a rating. That'll help us show up higher in the search results. Uh, So we're going to jump into this conversation with Bill Vanderbush after a quick sponsor segment. Religion loves Jesus the teacher is even okay with Jesus the prophet. Religion is not okay with Jesus the breaker of bondage, the transformer of hearts, the savior of nations. Because the real Jesus is the anointed one. He doesn't just have good teachings. He is the the breaker of bondage. He will transform you. You gotta go after knowing him more. He's worth it. He's worth worth your time. He's worth your life. And there's there's nothing, this, this city, this nation, the nations of the world, are not gonna be transformed by a satisfied people. They're gonna be transformed by lovesick warriors. Because if he's for us, who can be against us? If the king of the universe and all of his goodness, all of his backing, if all of heaven is for you, is standing behind you, supporting you, how how could anything succeed against you? How could you fail? We We could change the world. That's not just a fun phrase. If you'll give your life to this thing, to the real thing, if you'll find the real Jesus, the one who burns with eyes of fire, if you'll get a real hunger in your belly and you don't let anything else stop you, and if you'll you'll align yourself with who you are as a son or daughter of God, there is nothing that can stop you. This is the Fire Podcast. Well, I'm here with my friend Bill Vanderbush. Thank you for being on the show today. 
Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to have you on. Um, I've I've teased this a little bit on my social media and stuff, but I, I think you're the most interesting man I've ever met. Um, you're the uh, dose a key sky of uh, of the of the church. <laughs> Gotta get out more, uh, man. So yeah, I'm I'm I want them to hear some of your stories because I feel like you've done it uh, while flying under the radar for the most point most part as well. Um, yeah, we work really hard at that. <laughs> we, you seem to. From our meetings by the thousands. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you you've been really good. Like you speak all these places, and then you just kind of go back to your life, and uh, that's something I really appreciate you uh, re- appreciate about you. Like things like you know you opened a crepe shop and uh, you've just had like a, a really intriguing, non-traditional, whether in the church or out of the church life, which is really cool. We make it fun. Yeah. So we, I always like to start a little bit with like how we know each other. Um, so I, I met you at uh, one of George and Banoff's conferences um, when I was your driver, essentially. I think that's what happened, right? That's, that's right. how we met the first time. That's right. That's right. Where well, we went, we were in. I, uh, was that Columbus? Yeah, that was in Columbus. Or was it, it was else? at the. It, okay. it was at the Pickerington campus. Yeah, and uh, right. I remember it came up, and I didn't know if I was going to be able to do it or not. And they're like, "Hey, we need somebody to drive for Bill," and I was like, "Oh, I'll make it work." Uh, and I had literally missed you every single time because you had been to our church like probably three, four times before that. In, in my time okay. and I'd miss you every single time I yeah. was always out of town yeah I really enjoyed really enjoyed uh, connecting I, re- I remember because you had this uh, you had this real amazing way of asking questions that nobody else asks it's coming back to me now yeah so yeah. it's it's, it's that been was, a while I, I, I a lot of people and uh, and and that was memorable so you ask good questions and I do appreciate that I, I remember we we went out to uh, North Market and stuff and got food and we just had a great yeah. great conversation uh, and I I, you, I was really impressed. The good by, was. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I missed some of that coffee, honestly. Um, <laughs> in Seattle, you missed the coffee in Columbus. No offense to Columbus good. coffee, but wow, that's high praise. Yeah. Yeah, well, Seattle—it's like it's Starbucks. Um, there's there's some good there is some good coffee here. Shout out to Santo. Okay. Yeah, that's a spot. You come to Seattle, you need to go to Santo. Uh, <laughs> yeah, th- there's just a lot of there's a lot of bad coffee too. There's a lot of burnt. I don't know. This is my thing with Starbucks beans, man. I feel like they just burn the beans, and and then people, you know, feel like it's an exotic flavor. That's interesting because I I was listening. I love science. I think science and quantum science and physical science, all this stuff, is just always fun to me. And I was listening to a thing the other day that said that um, that disgust is a learned behavior. It's an imparted perspective. So, like when a child first smells something. They don't know whether it smells good or bad. They literally have no preference on it. There's no sense that their brain has any sense of like, this smells good, this smells bad. They have to watch other people's reaction to it to know whether or not they uh, they should uh, have a response of disgust. And it's a fascinating concept when you stop and think about it because the more educated a person is, the more disgusted they have the potential to be actually. So, um, it, which is weird. Maybe that's why knowledge, you know, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that produced preference became such a problem you know, for humanity. 
uh, one of the many reasons why it wow. did. But it just got me got me to thinking. I wonder if we haven't like if we haven't followed the masses on letting you know letting the repetition of of um, human preference reprogram our psyche to the point where we uh, we smell Starbucks coffee with its overly burned beans and go. How should I feel about this? And then you suddenly go, everybody else seems to like it. And everybody else is paying a, you know, arm and a leg for a cup of this stuff. I guess I might as well, too. And you do this long enough and pretty soon it's a luxury you can't afford not to have. So I feel like we've been we've been programmed. Is that too much information right off the bat? No, that, that'll <laughs> preach. Uh... Well, you know, I mean, I don't know if you've heard Brian Orm, a dear friend, but he says, he says that the, the kingdom of God programs your mind through uh, revelation. The kingdom of the world programs your mind through repetition. The kingdom of darkness programs your mind through, um, through trauma. And when you remove the revelation aspect out of it, then you end up letting repetition and pain determine or dictate your perspective or views on everything in this world. And so I feel like maybe that's the way it is with coffee in Starbucks is, uh, you know, bunch of unredeemed people are just letting the repetition and trauma of the burned beans and the repetition of the endless marketing <laughs> program us to believe that it's something that it's actually really not, which is, I mean, I, I tell you what I had the other day, nothing against, nothing against Starbucks. God bless them. You know, they proved that you can market a bad product enough to where it can actually become a success. But, <laughs> um, man, there I go <clears throat> again, God bless Starbucks. But I had, I was in Austin, Texas the other day and I went to a coffee shop with my daughter. She's a barista down there and she, she knows all the greatest coffee. And they had something called mushroom coffee, which I've never had before. And it was unbelievable. That and uh, I was in New York a while back and I ran into a place. They said uh, on the menu, it was Vietnamese egg coffee. And there was a line out the door to get this stuff. And two of the most awesome cups of coffee I've ever had, uh, the, uh, the, Mushroom coffee and Vietnamese egg coffee. So neither of which sound appetizing, but they're amazing. So those two things just need Starbucks marketing department and it would be huge. I just gave somebody a business idea out there. Nobody else is capitalizing on it. <laughs> so with that, I'm going to take a sip of so my this mushroom water. coffee. <laughs> with this, this mushroom coffee, is it, does it have any, like a coffee bean in it at all? Or is it? Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a uh, coffee base, but it's um, got uh, like a lion's mane mushroom or something in it. But what happens apparently is the, the, um, the pureed powdered form of the mushroom literally takes all the bitterness out of the coffee and, uh, and then puts a bunch of properties in it that are supposed to be really good for you. You know, I, I don't know. I, I loved it though. I thought it was great. Yeah. But I tell you, here's a sad part. Here's a sad thing with me and coffee. If we're going, if we're just going to talk coffee today, no, <laughs> no. sad that's, thing that's with me the and coffee, the podcast. right. It's, it's coffee. Uh, it's what Bill thinks of coffee. Uh, I, so I had COVID back in January and, uh, man, it, it kicked my ability to taste and smell to the curb. And when that came back, and I don't know if anybody else has had this, this, um, uh, experience, but when my smell came back, coffee smelled like garbage like it smelled like the inside of a warm garbage can absolutely disgusting and yet i mean i can taste it okay but when i'm brewing it grinding smell it, whatever i can't it, it just i couldn't deal with it so um it only finally started to return right after i was preaching here a few weeks ago 
And uh, a guy came up and gave me a, a bag of coffee beans that he had roasted and said, you know, here's, I'm a roaster and here's my bag of coffee beans. I'd love to just give it to you as a gift. And I went and squeezed it. And for the first time in months, I actually smelled coffee. And Tracy was standing there looking at me. She mm-hmm. said, you look like you're about to cry because I, I was, I mean, mm-hmm. and I've been drinking coffee since I, since I had COVID, even during COVID, I was drinking coffee that I did not like because I knew that I liked it. I just couldn't tell that I liked it in the moment. And I just kept every morning, brew a cup of coffee, suck it down and just go, I know I love this stuff. I'm not going to let my current state of my senses in their messed up form tell me that I don't actually love this. And, you know, maybe there's a message. Maybe there's a sermon there. I'm just going to verbal process a sermon here. Maybe that's a, maybe that's a lot of the deconstructed church is like they know they love Jesus. But right now they're just kind of like, you know, going through a process where they they feel like they're pushing against, you know, something that they know deep down inside they love. But somehow their senses have been like tweaked by trauma or whatever to the point where it feels like they just want to run away from churchianity, but, you know, at the same time, they're still daily embracing that revelation of union with Christ. See, we can turn anything into a sermon, Ryan. We can. <laughs> is that is that from your uh, quantum somebody preaching course? Out there getting free. What's that? Is that from quantum preaching, your quantum preaching course? No, but it should be. That's a really great point. I, I mean, literally just made that up right now. I'm sorry. I just got that downloaded revelation from the Lord right now. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Make make an ebook. That's really good. Make an ebook That's out awesome. of it. Um, My new e-course. Mushroom coffee and deconstruction. Yeah. So I want to get into a little little bit of your your journey. I mean, you grew up, your dad, mm-hmm. uh was an amazing man. I'd love to have you talk about him a little bit. And then just your, your process, you became a pastor. Um, and, and we can get into some of that. I, I also want to talk about, uh, eventually how you got into the supernatural, uh, side of things and, yeah. and the, it raining in your church and some of that. Um, Oh yeah. What we've talked about before, but yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your upbringing and your dad and all that? Yeah, uh, I grew up in a incredibly legalistic uh, setting, and my parents were part of the holiness movement, which my dad always said only lacked two things: holiness and movement. Um, otherwise, they had everything. <laughs> dad uh, didn't believe in the moving of the Holy Spirit, didn't believe in the gifts of the Spirit, didn't believe in tongues, any of that stuff. Um, you know, it was just straight. You know, uh, repent. Um, you know, repent, get saved, standard repent, get saved, you know, uh, Jesus come back soon and, um, you know, get right, turn or burn very, you know, very legalistic. Uh, it was, but he was a fun guy. He was incredibly happy. He was the happiest man I knew. And he believed that Jesus was really a happy, a happy guy. He would, he would say, you know, I just find everywhere Jesus sits down, his lap is full of kids. Show me a kid that want to sit, sits on a lap of grouch. I mean, they don't do that. So he was absolutely convinced that God was in a good mood long before it was cool to be so. And so I grew up with that, that sense and that revelation. When I was about four years old, my dad uh, and mom were in St. Cloud, Florida, and they had an encounter with the Lord in a coffee shop called the Praise the Lord Cafe. Dad and mom got filled with the Holy Spirit, started speaking in tongues, couldn't figure out what happened to him. Then that night, dad was standing in the pulpit. I remember this like it was yesterday. I'm sitting next to my mom in this Nazarene church in St. Cloud, still there today. And there's two people that I know of that were at this meeting 40, 44 years ago. 
and uh, still talk about it. And they, um, uh, dad got up and he, he starts to preach. Uh, and this is back in the day when you would have multi-week revivals. You didn't, you didn't do like, you know, two night meetings. You did like three week meetings because it took that long, you know, for you to, to get God to show up apparently. So, um, so dad's preaching away and he says right in the middle of his message, he hears the audible voice of God. First time he's ever had this experience in his life says he hears God say, stop, I want to heal somebody. And dad says out loud, how do you want to do it? He answers back, God answers back, have these people grip their Bibles and you pray and I'll heal. So dad says out loud, and of course, none of us hear this. Dad's just up there just preaching away. He's a machine. And, um, and, and all of a sudden he stops, look like he's seen a ghost and he's just, just totally silent. And then he answers back, how do you want to do it? So, you know, he's having a conversation. There's something going on here. So dad, next thing he says is God wants to heal somebody. And if you grip your Bibles, I'm going to pray and God's going to heal you. And a uh, guy who got his back broken in a motorcycle accident got healed that night. A lady got out of a wheelchair. I remember seeing crutches being held up over somebody's head. Um, I mean, it was a crazy, crazy night. And dad was off to the races at that point. He knew there was more. And so from that point on, healing, miracles, signs, and wonders marked his ministry. So when I became a pastor at the tender age of 25 uh, in 1998, I was not... Uh, I wasn't far from that. I mean, I'd like come out of that kind of movement. But back in the 90s, the uh, the the move was seeker sensitivity, you know. And so that's where I was at. I mean, I was like, you know, we don't we're we may be a Pentecostal charismatic spirit filled church, but you wouldn't know it because we're just going to make this, you know, simple, super simple, you know, call to Christ discipleship program kind of thing. And so uh, my dad showed up to church uh, after we had built a new building. Church was growing. And dad says, uh, man, Bill, you guys are so excellent. You don't even need the Holy Spirit and you can still do church. And I was like, wow, thanks, Ouch. dad. But yeah, but it was great. It was, it was the best thing he could have said. So um, on a Saturday afternoon, October 2004, I called our staff together and some of our team members. And they said, why don't we do an afternoon prayer meeting, you know, on Saturday afternoon and uh, so we're standing in the sanctuary and I say, God, send the rain of your presence. And all of a sudden I feel water falling and it, it literally covered within a minute. The entire ceiling is covered with wet, just wet and uh, water's falling everywhere. And I said out loud, this is bad. This is wrong. This is going to ruin everything. I stomped outside of the car to, to get my, uh, to get my uh, uh, phone to call the contractor to tell him to come up here and fix this building because it's our soundboard and everything, you know, all the instruments, everything's getting ruined. And the staff is like getting plastic to put it over stuff to try to cover cover stuff up. And I walked outside and my son, Britton, who was 10 years old at the time, walks out after me. And he notices what I didn't notice. And that was there's not a cloud in the sky. And he says to me, Dad, it's dry outside, but it's raining in the sanctuary. And I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me as loud as I've ever heard and say, if I pour out on this church what you just asked me for, the same response would be the same response this church has. This is bad. This is wrong. And this is going to ruin everything. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? And about 20 minutes later, uh, one of the guys in staff comes out and says, come take a look at this. And we walked back in, and there wasn't a drop of water anywhere. And the ceiling was dry. The, the, uh, uh, all the plastic where it had collected water was just dust. And so we were, um, we were definitely in a place of mystery at that point. And what it did is it took us out of the boundaries of only preaching things we understood. 
And I say we, I'm talking about like all of us that were on staff in that church have been, were radically impacted by that and to this day. I think it, it kind of shoved us out of what I would say is our denominational bubble a little bit, a lot actually. And, um, and we stumbled into uh, relationships with, with, with places like Bethel that could embrace these kind of things. Because I had no grid for that. I mean, I, you know, I knew God could do supernatural stuff. I just didn't experience it like my dad did. But that was the beginning of a lifestyle that has just, I mean, taken us, you know, all over the world and seen some amazing, amazing, amazing things. And, uh, and it's just been a, a blast. And it continues. It keeps going. And and you got connected as far as Bethel. I, I believe you said you heard Chris Valentin. I, I might have that wrong. You heard Chris or, or somebody, and you were like, "These are my people. This is my my tribe." Yeah. Well, well, I tell you what happened is I had um, I had never heard uh, I had never even heard of Bill Johnson uh, or Bethel Church, but our next door neighbor, uh, actually a guy we were running a house from at the time, who's a dear dear friend, he's gone on to be with the Lord now, but, um, he was living in, in Texas at the time. And he says, um, there's a guy coming into town. I'd love for you to hear, uh, would you, would you come to the conference? And I'm like, you know, it's tomorrow night. And I'm thinking I'm conferenced out. I mean, I actually resigned the church. We were living out in the woods, um, you know, close to our friends. He loved Jesus. He was all excited about the Lord. I was just over the whole conference thing. And I was kind of like, I was kind of taking, in a sense, taking a break from, from the norm for me to try to shake off the, you know, kind of some, some old mindsets, um, religious based mindsets and stuff. So, so, uh, I, at first I said no. And then I woke up, I actually woke myself up in the middle of the night and I was saying out loud, what you know will keep you from what you need to know if you don't remain a novice. I'll never forget it. What you know will keep you from what you need to know if you don't remain a novice. It was a weird phrase. Like, I don't ever use the word novice. Like, what a bizarre thing to say. And I wrote it down on a piece of paper on the nightstand. And the next morning, went back to sleep. The next morning when I woke up, I looked at it. And for whatever reason, I knew I needed to go to this conference. So I told my friend I'd show up. And uh, when I got there, the place was packed. There was no seats left. And I got there late because, you know, my interest level on things at the time was just was just way low. And, um, I knew the Lord was taking us on a journey. I just, I was sort of, I was more in a place of fatigue than hunger. I didn't know, I didn't know how hungry I was, right? I was just kind of tired. So I come into the room and, uh, they introduce, they introduce Bill. I don't have a seat. I'm standing against the back wall. So they introduce Bill and he gets up and he looks around the room. This is, this would be October of 2006 at this point. It's in Austin, Texas. And, uh, Bill looks around the room and he looks all the way in the back he says two things first. He says, Jesus Christ is the most normal Christian in the Bible. And that's, that struck me because I would felt like I was relatively normal and I was a Christian, but I was nothing like Jesus. So although already I'm just like, wow, ouch. I mean, profound, but ouch. And the second phrase he says was Jesus Christ is perfect theology. And I thought I'm a theology major. Nobody ever told me this, like, be like Jesus. It's perfect theology. You know, to me, that was an unattainable reality. So in two statements, he's inspired and offended me all at the same time. And then he looks, scans the room, looks right at me and says this phrase, what you know will keep you from what you need to know if you don't remain a novice. And I about had to pick myself up off the floor. I was like, what is happening? But by the end of that night, I had seen spontaneous healing happen all around the room. And I knew I had encountered the authentic gospel. And so um, uh, 
friend of mine who was a pastor at the church at the time and known him for years, still good friends to this day. He said, um, he said, go tell Bill the story of the rain in the sanctuary. And I'm like, I'm tired of telling that story. People look at you like you're crazy. But he convinced me to. And so I told Bill the story of the rain in the sanctuary. And I got done and Bill looks at me and goes, sounds like Jesus to me. And that was the point where I knew, okay, I found my tribe. I mean, so I've never lived in Reading, never attended the church out there. I mean, we've been out there a few times, um, done conferences with the guys, you know, through the years and we cross paths and stuff. And I have a tremendous, tremendous appreciation value for everything they carry. Um, just love them. But um, yeah, it's it's always just been relational. Never been on staff out there. I don't have any formal connection to them. It's just friendship and relational. So um, we moved to Maui. We ended up going to Hawaii and became um, the first satellite. It was a trial thing, a satellite school of supernatural ministry. So they hadn't even released the DVDs for the school of supernatural ministry yet. They were sending them to us. We were the first ones that got them. So they were sending them to us as they were making them. And we made an invitation to people uh, on Maui and church I, I ended up pastoring uh, at over there. And uh, we made an invitation to people saying, you know, we're going to show these videos. And uh, at the time, there were five, I think there were five videos of Bill Johnson's on YouTube. And I had uploaded four of them from that conference. I mean, there was no smartphones or anything back then. It was pre-iPhone days. And so uh, uh, I thought, you know, if we get 25 people interested in watching these videos and going, you know, going after the more, then that'll be great. And the first night we started the school, 210 people showed up and it just grew from there. So, uh, the, the school became, the school in Maui became like a miracle machine. It was unbelievable. The, the miracles that we saw over there was the, to this day is the high point in terms of ministry wise, the most consistent were day after day after day. It's like, you couldn't, you couldn't have a day without a miracle, you know, um, and, and I don't camp around that experience is like, oh, I, mean, I want to return to that. I just, to me, I, it, it showed me what was possible. And so uh, I was draw faith from that moment. It's really kind of a, kind of a cool time. Man, that's incredible. So you end up in Hawaii for a period of time. When did you end up back in, in the States, in the mainland? Uh, early 2008. Yeah, we came back to, to Austin, Texas and, um, uh, ended up starting a school of ministry back there. My dad had a stroke in early 2008, and as an only child, I was taking care of dad. And so I, I kind of had in the back of my mind that we come back for a little while and go back to Maui, and just never did. We helped start a school of supernatural ministry in Austin, actually a couple of them, um, three of them, well, I think about it now, over the years. And one of them is still still goes to this day, and, and uh, just honored to be be a part of relation relationship with those guys. And so um, it's, yeah, Austin's been been kind of a home base for us for years. But right now we live in Orlando and have for the last five years. And we started school here for a little while and it ran for about a year and a half uh, while I was at, on staff at a Presbyterian church of all places. And uh, and that was a lot of fun. And so we, we did that school for a while and then brought it to a close. It was kind of a short term thing. Schools are schools are a fascinating thing, Ryan. It's almost like it's almost like uh, they, they sort of exist as an invitation to a lifestyle. Uh, and, it, you know, they don't seem to, for us at least, they don't seem to be something that we, we want to turn into a business uh, in, a, in a single location that stays for a while. They become an invitation for a few people to step out into something. And I think of it like, you know, like Paul, um, it was in Acts 19 where Paul uh, stays in one place 
and he teaches for two years. And in that two years from that one lecture hall, all of Asia is reached with the gospel. And so that's kind of what I think of in terms of schools. We are, we're drawing together the hungry who are going to release something into the earth. And, um, and so they're meant to be brought in to be sent out, you know? And so, uh, so we've done that. We've done that a few times now. We really enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. Um, you know, I, it seems like we'll always have the places like Bethel where people go and it's, it's almost like a pilgrimage or a place to go and be trained and raised up and sent out. Um, but the pop-up schools, schools like, like that might be something, something for the future. Um, Yes, it's a really cool idea, and I and I think maybe that's the direction we're headed because a lot of churches uh, and organizations are just realizing they can't structure themselves or establish themselves in the way they previously have. Uh, it just seems like all that's beginning to change. That's true. No, there, there's definitely a there's definitely a shift of the way things are being done, you know. And uh, uh, you know, I liken it unto. Uh, we use the term reformation all the time right now. And it feels like we're at a bit of a reformation right now, the reformation of the church. I was talking to a young lady the other day and she said, uh, you know, if I say yes to Jesus, is he going to turn me into a Christian? And I'm like, what is Christian to you? What do you mean? And then she listed off a whole list of, you know, you know, um, uh, things that, I mean, the stereotypes exist for a reason, right? So a whole bunch of things that it's like, you know, these the stereotypical, what the world thinks of Christian and it's like she, after hearing the gospel, she fell in love with Jesus, wanted to say yes to Jesus. She was just afraid if she said yes to Jesus, she was going to suddenly be turned into, into one of these people who, in a sense, from her perspective, were marked by, by um, less humility and more arrogance. And, uh, and I said, wow, that's, it's amazing that we have postured ourselves in such a way as to become the very roadblock to the Jesus we're inviting people to. So, you know, to, to the extent to which the church does not look like Jesus, uh, that's, the, that's the distance of reformation that we need to be brought back into. It's we're being kind of brought back in from what I would call churchianity to Christianity. And I, I love the church. God bless the church. I mean, the church is, uh, I heard somebody say a while back, and I've, I've said this too, that we're moving from the church age to the kingdom age. But I think the church comes out of the kingdom. It's a byproduct of preaching the gospel of the kingdom is that there's a company of people united around Christ that are brought together. And that is what the church is supposed to be. I think in Western uh, Christian thought, though, we've we've taken the church and turned it into uh, a bit of a machine that has to be sustained, um, self-sustaining. So it, it ends up becoming a business that uh, is, is uh, looks a lot a lot like uh, like a modern business as opposed to to an organic family. And I think the kingdom is family. And so returning things back to the focus on Christ, focus on the gospel, the kingdom, um, you know, all, all of the things that have become real fads for us uh, are, well, this is a soapbox. I don't know if you want me to step on this one, but um, all the things that are the graces of God, the gifts of God that he has given us, we have a tendency to take those gifts and we elevate those gifts to the point where they become idols. By idols, I mean we, we take our focus off of Christ and put them onto the gift. Or here's the common phrase, off the giver and onto the gift, right? So, for example, if I do a prophetic conference or if I go to a healing conference or whatever, those conferences sell out, they're packed out. Uh, I just attended a three-day event on Christology. Um, Christology and the Nicene Creed and the establishment of who Christ is and the deity of Christ, the... Uh, uh, 
you know, hypostatic union of Christ and man and all the wonderful, beautiful theological terms that the church bled for. And hardly anybody showed up to it. And I thought, wow, we can do conferences on the prophetic and healing and people will come out in droves. And I can go to some conferences in the prophetic and you don't hear a whole lot about Jesus and you barely ever see a Bible cracked at all. So the emphasis on the word in Christ becomes, you know, shoved to the side while the gift is almost like, you know, we get enamored with the magic show. We want to see the, the, we want to see the, uh, the spectacular. What I really feel like the Lord is doing, though, is he's drawing our attention back to the preaching of the gospel and, and letting the gifts, the graces of prophecy and healing become a byproduct to the preaching of the gospel as they were always intended to be. I can say a ton more about that if you want me to go there, but... <laughs> If, hey, if you want to, go for it. All right. I'll give you an example. <laughs> um, I'll give you an example. Like in the last in the last year, the prophetic movement uh, has been decimated by the election situation, and the the healing movement has been kicked in the teeth by COVID. Both of those things are movements that I don't believe were ever meant to be movements. They're gifts of grace from God to the church that are meant to flow as a byproduct of preaching Jesus, preaching the gospel. And so uh, here's an example. Um, if you go to the story in the Old Testament of where, where uh, the children of Israel are complaining against Moses and Aaron and, and snakes come out of the ground, start biting everybody and people start dying. God tells Aaron, make a serpent of bronze, put it on a pole and everybody who sees it or looks at it will be healed. So it was a supernatural grace by the Holy Spirit of God. God communicates a, a prophetic act to Moses. He does it and it results in a healing revival that saves a nation. Fast forward to 2 Kings chapter 18, and you see Hezekiah. God tells Hezekiah, from a place of authority, remove the idols in the land. So Hezekiah starts tearing down poles and altars and all kinds of crazy stuff. And in the middle of the list, it's a thousand years after the, the Moses incident, there's right in the middle of the list, it says, and Hezekiah broke apart the bronze serpent that Moses had made for the people had started offering incense to it. So what happened is in the future, people took and crystallized around a past move of God and they actually began to worship the move and everything associated with the move. Uh, and God has to come in and go, you guys have turned this moment into an idol. And so uh, that's got to come down. God is firmly committed to the destruction of everything we turn into an idol, even if it's something that's a gift that he gave us. Um, there's no, there's no uh, uh, you know, to honor the gift is to honor the giver. But to elevate the gift beyond the giver and shove the giver aside uh, turns the gift into an idol. And so, uh, you know, I, I look at I look at the life of Paul. Uh, Paul uh, in First Corinthians one seventeen says says this really astonishing phrase. He says, "Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel." We think of baptism baptism is an essential part of the Christian faith. But Paul goes, I only baptized two of you, and I'm really glad that's all I baptized. I, I, I'm not here to baptize. In other words, Christ didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel. Baptism would flow out of that, but preaching the gospel was first. Uh, in Acts 16, Paul and Silas are going around preaching the gospel, and this demon-possessed girl decides to do marketing for him and follows him around yelling you know, stuff into the air. That's actually true. These men are servants of the Most High God, showing us a way of salvation. Uh, the, the key part of the story for me though, is the line in there that says, Paul, after many days being greatly annoyed, he turns a cast a demon out of her. So that tells me that the first order of business was not deliverance. 
The first order of business was to preach the gospel. When he got annoyed by the presence of a demon, then he dealt with it. But in other words, Paul didn't like build his entire reputation on having a deliverance ministry. He preached the gospel and deliverance flowed out of that. Baptism flowed out of that. Uh, even probably the most dramatic example is when Paul is preaching and, and uh, Eutychus, his kid, is like sitting in a window and he falls out the window and dies. Paul goes down there to the street where this kid is dead and he lays hands on, raises a guy from the dead. And then to me, the most astonishing part of the story, he goes back upstairs and he finishes the message. It's like, what was the point? wasn't to raise the dead. The point was to preach the gospel. And so raising the dead became a byproduct of preaching the gospel. And these days, it's almost like we build entire ministries out of graces that are supposed to naturally flow out of our lives as we preach the gospel. And I would say this, Ryan, maybe this is the most offensive thing I'll say today. I think with all of the focus that we have on the gifts and, and the supernatural elevating it above preaching Jesus, above drawing people's attention to Christ in you, the hope of glory, about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. When we elevate the gifts, then people get more confused about God than they've ever been. And I've seen more of an outpouring of the supernatural in the past few years um, through people in this nation who've built incredible ministries that I have tremendous, tremendous respect for. But at the same time, I look around and I see more confusion about the nature of who God is, what he's like, and who Jesus is than, than I've ever seen before. And it tells me that we have capitalized on people's enamorment, whatever that's even a word, with the supernatural and the spiritual and the grace gifts that God has given to us, shoving Christ out of the way. Last thing I'll say on this is, um, if you ever look up the term antichrist, anti is a fascinating word uh, in Greek in that word antichrist, because you'd think the English word antichrist would mean opposed to Christ, but that's not what the word antichrist means. It's a very subtle Greek word that doesn't mean opposed to. It means instead of. Think about that. Mm. That means it's like it's like uh, Christ is the center of my life. But then something else a little more fascinating comes along. And he, like he gives me a gift. And I'm, I'm not going to cancel Christ out of my life. He's still a big part of it. But I'm just going to shove him to the side to focus on this right now. So it doesn't matter whether it's power or politics or whatever it happens to be. The minute that we look at Jesus and go, you know what, you've kind of gotten boring. And so we're going to shove you aside and focus on this now. And then we start seeing that that people will come out of the woodwork for that. You know, um, uh, then it becomes really easy for us to subtly become antichrist in nature, not even realizing we're doing it. And the problem with uh, with adopting an antichrist mindset is people become very confused about who Christ is. And I say, look around the world at the world right now. Ask people, who is Jesus to you? One of my favorite questions, you know, who is Jesus to you? It's the, it's the question Jesus said of the disciples, who do you say that I am? And it's amazing both in and out of church how hard it is to find somebody say he's the son of God. He's the Christ, the son of the living God, the anointed one, my savior, my Lord, that, that kind of thing. Jesus has become an instead of. Uh, along with all of the other fads that we've grabbed a hold of. And so I'm really feeling like a big part of this reformation is bringing people's attention back to Jesus, back to Christ, absolutely is the center of it all. And everything, I think if we do that, we're going to see more healing, deliverance, miracles, signs, wonders, baptism, all that stuff will become more pronounced when we stop making those things the thing that fuel our ministry 
and letting Jesus be the thing that fuels the ministry. That makes sense. I don't know. I hope that's not offensive to people. Or maybe maybe it's good that it is. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. You know? Let it be offensive. <laughs> you know, one of the things that uh, I I think that that we we've, we've seen um, you and I both know Michael Julianos, and you know he's he's one of those people that he has he has just been in his heart. He will not move away from the central message of the person of Jesus, and. Uh, and you know he, he's he's around a lot of the guys that are yeah. doing all the stuff stuff and the the healings and miracles and all of that and and those things operate yeah. in his ministry too but he never takes the focus off of Jesus uh which is really beautiful and uh i i think i think there's a there is a longing for miracles signs wonders anything supernatural there's a longing for that right now in the earth and uh in even in the younger, like Gen Z, um, there's a hunger, hunger for that. And uh, I think that's one of the things we're seeing happen in our church is like, even in the midst of that, if you just preach Jesus, all the stuff happens and, uh, and, and God will, yeah, you know, Jesus said, if, if you lift me up, up, uh, if I be lifted up, right. I'll draw them and then to myself. And, uh, that, that's what we're beginning to see. Um, but, there's also like a, a just such a need for the word of God and a, a need for understand, understanding, understanding, uh, actual uh, a, a basis of theology, um, a grounding in theology. Um, you, you mentioned before Christology, and uh, you know, I believe that if we uh, if we keep the focus, if we we have our folk focus on just will be much less likely to move on to signs and wonders yeah. and away from yes. the giver of the sign and the wonder. Years ago, I actually had this dream where a move of God was happening in a church and there was a glory cloud with, with gold dust. And this really crazy thing happened. The more, uh, as everyone began to look at the glory cloud at first, it was out of this place of worship of Jesus and mm. his glory is manifesting. Yeah. But as we, as, as our awe started to turn to worship of the sign, yeah. it started to disappear. And it was, it was kind of crazy because it was almost like God was pulling back because we were taking our I can us. tell you that's not, that's not a, that's not a dream. That, that actually happened to our church in Austin. The last church I was a pastor at in Austin had that exact same thing that you dreamed actually happen. Because it was a church that was marked by more miracles than I've ever seen in one church, like localized in one body. They had we have feather clouds, white feather clouds, yellow feather clouds, rainbow feather clouds. Every, uh, gold dust would cover entire sections of chairs and then would disappear. Um, people were getting gold teeth. Crazy miracles and creative stuff were happening. It was like wild stuff, you know. And so uh, people. Uh, we actually took a, a section of the, the carpet uh, that had gold on it and, and they tested the gold and it was real. I mean, gold flecks and flakes all over it. And they, they like sealed it in a glass frame and put it up in the front just to, just to kind of let people know this is what happens here. And you know, why does this happen? We're not sure, but the glory of God is tangible. It's real. It's heaven leaking into earth, that kind of thing. Um, you know, we never did any of it. We never manufactured it. It just started happening. But here's what took place, though. People started talking about it. When they talked about it, then people started coming. So people would show up, and then when um, and you know when iPhones and everything started being invented, you know everybody had a camera. 
now people can take pictures of it. So, uh, you know, we'd be in the middle of worship and all of a sudden there'd be feathers everywhere in the air, just kind of like somebody let a pillow loose and, uh, and people would stop worshiping and pull their cameras out and start shooting video. And it was weird. It's like one day, uh, one day the whole thing shut down. It just stopped. And uh, we had a guy in the church. His name was Dudley Perio. You can look this guy up online. I wrote a book about him. He was covered in gold for like three years. Couldn't get it off. He worked in the oil fields. And it came from worship. He was just in time of worship, head to toe. Boom, he's covered in gold. Dudley and I traveled and spoke together in conferences and things. People started showing up, though, because of the manifestations. They didn't, couldn't tell you what was being taught. It wasn't about, like, you know, bringing people to Christ. It was about, you know, coming to see the stuff. And so... When that became, and I think God's grace let it go a little longer than maybe, you know, we would have. But when that became more prominent, when taking the pictures and all that stuff, when capturing the glory for the purpose of putting putting it out there uh, became more prominent to people than, than the presence of the Lord, the tangible presence of the Lord that everybody was just enjoying and experiencing, it's almost like all the manifestations shut down. And I think the Lord was basically inviting us into this thing like, if you, do you need the manifestation to be there in order to perceive my presence? We had to come to the reality that, no, we don't need the litmus test of the manifestation in order to have your presence there. You know, when Solomon dedicates the temple, um, he, the Bible says that the, the glory of the Lord filled the temple with a cloud, right? So thick that the priests couldn't even do their duties. I mean, they're probably bumping into each other in the cloud, right? And... And yet the glory didn't depart from the temple. It was there uh, and remained upon the temple. But you don't see a whole lot beyond that about the thick glory cloud that filled the temple so the priests couldn't you know, do their duties. There came a point, in a sense, even in that moment, where the visible manifestation of the glory outside of the Holy of Holies lifted to the point where people now had to operate by faith and not by sight. So, you know, uh, when, you know, when in the New Testament we're told we walk by faith and not by sight, I think it's a continual reminder that even though God will put things before our senses, our sight, you know, smell, whatever it happens to be, sounds, um, that we, we always live by a continual awareness that whether we can perceive it with our senses or not, we know his presence and his glory is there present and within us, resident within us. I'm in a church, um, uh, the gate in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, Pastor John Matthews, awesome church, love going to this place. And the worship team stops right in the middle of, of, of a worship set and the guy on the keyboard backs away from the keyboard. Nobody's touching anything. Sound guy attested to this afterwards. And all of a sudden, the sound fills the room. And I thought they kicked on a surround sound effect. I couldn't believe what I was hearing because it was so cool. And afterwards, we're like debriefing on this thing. We're like, whoa. It was like the, the, you could hear the, the voices of angels just filled the room. And it, but it was so subtle and it mixed with everything we were doing. And as it began, people's voices just started lifting up all over the room as if something just happened, rose up, a sound rose up in the people of God and, and just kind of collided with the sound of heaven. And it sustained for a good three minutes and captured on video and everything. And it's an amazing, amazing moment. And I felt like at the end of it, though, it was like, let's enjoy this, not capitalize on it as a sign and a wonder, because the sign giver and the wonder maker are always present and with us. You know, uh, I think there's so many times where Jesus did something amazing, then turns to somebody and goes, don't talk about this. 
like, what? You know, it's like, <laughs> they're not necessarily to be drawn attention to the signs and the wonders themselves, but to, to Jesus. It's really, it really always comes back to just being about him. Anyway, I don't know, man, you got me like on a roll here today. I, I usually don't do, don't do podcasts like this. <laughs> <laughs> That's that. That's my hope. Uh, this is. I love, I love hearing all this. Yeah, I mean, there's something to that though, because we in the charismatic world we love to market whatever is happening, and there really is that's something it. to not just just being in. And I wonder if it's the lack of the fear of the Lord, because I I know that I've been on both sides of that. I've been in the the place where. You know, there was one point at uh, actually, you know, Bree, Bree might have been there for mm-hmm. this one. Um, we were at the prayer yeah. house and uh, on on OSU's campus, Ohio State's campus, and it was yeah. just like probably five or ten of us. We were worshiping, and at, there was like a lull in worship, and all of a sudden we could hear a whole band playing, and wow. and so we stopped and could still hear it. And so I went outside, and it wasn't outside, and it would stop. Once you go outside, you go back in, and you could hear it audible to all of us and it was amazing and i we didn't i don't know that we really told anybody about it or what it wasn't anything like that and then i've been on the other side where stuff starts happening and you feel like you feel that like oh i gotta tell people you know maybe out of a good place maybe out of oh i want to draw people to what i'm doing um and so i'm sure a lot of leaders have been in that place but there really is something to just having do you think that's a fear of the lord like a lack of the fear of the lord or a need for the fear of the lord and just like we're just gonna let that be and let that turn into worship or is it something else I don't know, you know, to get without completely getting into a definition of the fear of the Lord, I think I think I would the, the short and dirty answer would be um it it's it's our tendency, our Western tendency to market anything worth marketing. Um the gospel has never needed marketing. And uh I, I think of it like like uh the apostles who were a motley crew of, you know, blue collar folks, uh, who, you know, lose one, lose one to suicide, lose the leader to denying Christ for a time, you know, but those guys didn't have any internet, social media, Facebook, nothing. There was no marketing involved in it. All they had was a life of surrender to the voice of the Lord. And yet they managed to turn the entire world upside down. And, uh, and I look at that and I realize mm-hmm. there's something there's something about uh, I think I love strategies and good ideas and those are tons of fun. But if they work, we end up taking the credit for it. And you look at the way the disciples mm-hmm. live their lives. I mean, each one of them is going to end up, you know, getting martyred, you know, with the exception of John um, getting martyred for their faith and and not recanting. And I just like, man, a life sacrifice just laid down for the sake of the gospel to bring to bring people an awareness of Jesus and what he's done, the power of the finished work of the cross, the, you know, the totality of what he accomplished on that cross, uh, the resurrection, my goodness. I mean, these, are, these guys die because they start talking about the resurrection. You know, I'm just like, wow, they're preaching Jesus. It's challenging old mindsets and they're giving their lives and spilling blood for this stuff. And, uh, you know, you just, you see this and you realize, man, these guys had no marketing no marketing experience and they had no marketing tools and and yet mm. you know surrender to the voice of the lord literally was was the thing that turned the planet upside down now we got all the tools and we got all the stuff we can hardly get the gospel across the street 
So I'm thinking, you know, maybe this part of this reformation is this, this sense, I know this is a long answer to a short question, but, you know, uh, that's one of the things you, you brought up, Brie. I admire greatly about, uh, about Brie is that she's seen tons of miracles. Um, you know, she'll talk about, yeah, I pray for somebody on the street and they got healed. And then the conversation immediately always goes back to Jesus. I love that. I think to me that that'd be the greatest discipleship in the entire world is, is, is if Jesus becomes the, the thing we are most taken with, um, the one we're most taken with. And again, I'm just saying, you know, if, if, if we really want to appeal to the Western marketing mindset, I think focusing on Jesus first and foremost would produce without like, without without holding back on what he invites us into, uh, I think we would see more miracles, healing signs, wonders, dead raisings, all that stuff than we've ever seen before. But, you know, yeah, I don't know. I, I think the fear of the Lord is, um, you know, there's two kinds of fear in the Bible. Um, when you think of fear, um, there's the word pachad, which, which means a fear whose objects are imagined. In other words, I got to make it up. Uh, I'm imagining I'm about to be punished. Therefore, I have a fear, and it's a fear of something that hasn't happened yet. That would be Pachad. Um, Psalm 111, the verse that everybody likes to quote, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the word Pachad, it's the word Yerah, which is a fear that you're actually experiencing right now. In other words, it's a present tense encounter with more might, power, glory, majesty than you've ever ever seen before. So you don't have to imagine it. It's actually happening. So you could translate that, that a present tense encounter with the glory of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's not a fear of some future punishment. That's the beginning of wisdom. That becomes debilitating. So we have, like, let's say we have a nation that came to Christ through that kind of fear, uh, a fear of impending punishment. In other words, they got scared into the gospel. You know, you better love Jesus or else, right? And so what it ends up is producing a lot of people who, who believe the message, but they're scared to death to live the message because they know they really can't live up to the righteousness or holiness of God. So they live with awareness of their own self-depravity. And uh, without, uh, without a revelation of Christ in you, the hope of glory, you'll never let the Father convince you of your identity. So, uh, you know, we have a fear of the Lord to some extent. But if it's a fear of impending punishment, it'll live, it'll cause you to be powerless. It's the it's the guy it's the guy with the talent that buried it in the ground. And when the master comes back and goes, "Why'd you bury the talent in the ground? Why'd you bury what I gave you in the ground?" He says, "I was afraid." Fear becomes the thing that causes us to live without power, unhealthy fear. But when I am aware of the glory of God, I am looking around for somebody to pray for. Why? Because I know in the glory, miracles happen, healing happens. Jesus is being introduced to people. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a it's a different kind of a fear. So somebody says, you know, well, how do you define the fear of the Lord? I say, look at the results and the fruit of it. Does it cause you to walk in more power or less? Does it cause you to walk in a greater revelation of the righteousness of God in Christ, or 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 not? Or does it cause you to to to, to look at your own depravity and and uh, feel like uh, feel like you're worthless and Christ hasn't done anything to 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 save you? And now you have to work, you know, for what's already been given to you, that kind of thing. So, you know, maybe again, that's part of the reformation is to bring us back to an accurate representation of what it means to actually carry the fear of the Lord. It's people that live and aware, aware of the glory of God. And, oh, so much we could talk about with the glory. Whew. My favorite subject in the whole world, I think, is the grace and glory of God. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'd love to get into that. Yeah, I, th- I think of the, the fear of the Lord too. Like it's, it's uh, as you're saying, that made me think of just poverty of spirit. It's that, that understanding of, you know, Matthew 5, uh, what is that, my 5 3? Uh, yeah. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. And everyone's spiritually bankrupt, but it's the recognition <laughs> of the fact that we're spiritually bankrupt that actually posi- positions receive the kingdom to receive yeah. everything God has. Yeah. And I, I, it's, it's that, that is the fear of the Lord recognizing, seeing something greater than yourself and like you, I need you. And, and if I have you, I have everything or, yeah. or John Bevere. I, I, I saw this recently. I don't know if this is from one of his books, but um, he said the def- his definition of the fear of the Lord, he's like the fear of the Lord isn't a fear of God. It's a fear of being without him. And this, mm. that, that understanding I, I like a lot because it's this, I, I just want to be step in step with him. And I, even, even thinking about, um, or Bill Johnson and like every step with the dove in mind, you know, when yeah. we were talking about the marketing, I just had this picture of, it's like, it's really hard to point at the dove and not scare the dove away. And yeah. there's just something about, it's, it's almost better just to walk, walk with the dove, honor what's happening, let him draw people. He'll bring the right people if we if we trust Holy Spirit with that peace. But if we take it away from him and we try to do it for him, that's something, you know, it'll it'll look different. So no, that's really yeah, it's good. You said something. If I if I can just you know, you know gently just kind of just kind of maybe push back a little bit on a on something you just said, just for for the for the sake of my own journey, because I think everybody's kind of on a journey and where they're at. You know, the idea of the fear of being without God. Um, I, I lived with that for years, Ryan. I had this sort of consistent awareness that, you know, man, if I do something, you know, I, I could suddenly find myself in a posture or position of being completely without God. And um, and I was going through Psalm 139 one day, uh, you know, where David is just beautifully, you know, with so much poetic language saying, you know, God, you search me and you know me, you know, when I sit down, when I stand up, you understand my thoughts, my lying down, encompass my path and all my ways. You're acquainted with everything. There's not a word on my tongue that you don't know altogether. You've hedged me in behind before me, you've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is wonderful for me. I can't even attain to it. Then he says this phrase in there. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And then he gets theologically difficult. He says, if I ascend into your heaven, you were there normally, right? Of course he would be. He says, if I descend into heaven, if I make my, make my bed in hell, he says, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, settle in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me. And if I say, surely the darkness will cover me, it'll be like light about me because all the same to you. So I will praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. My soul knows that well. Um, you know, David has this revelation that, as, as a new covenant believer, I struggled with for years to try to get closer and closer and closer to God. And David suddenly, I think David was like the one that kind of kind of shook me awake on it. When David essentially, Psalm 139 is David going, where do I go to get away from you? And I'm thinking, wait a minute, if David suddenly had this real, realization that I cannot get away from you, in an old covenant system, then where where's my new covenant perspective at? Especially when I read things like in Colossians where, you know, in him all things consist and he holds all things together. He is before and through all things. I'm like, hmm. you don't exist apart from Christ. In him we live and move and have our being. He literally is holding the entire cosmos together with the power and the sound of his word. 
how can I even possibly separate from that? It, it's, you know, I, I think that's why Jesus said in Mark, it was in Mark 7, where he says, you know, many will come in my name and say, Lord, Lord, look what all we did in your name. And you'll say, I depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, and I never even knew you. And there's two statements in that phrase, depart from me and I never knew you, that are actually somewhat kind of impossibilities. I mean, it's really the humor of Jesus. I used to look at that and I'd see that as a major warning. But then I suddenly realized, where am I going to go? If he, if he literally says, depart from me, and I try to exercise that option, where can I go? The only way I can possibly uh, get away from his presence is in my mind. I can allow myself to be ignorant of, of, of his presence. So, but where can I possibly go and get away from him? And the other part is, I never knew you. That's impossible. What does he not know? So Jesus drops like two puzzles, in a sense, at people going, you know what, uh, I'm going to give you a challenge. In other words, there's people that are out there doing the works of God, but they're living a life of distance and separation from God without an awareness of his presence, but they're operating by principles which can actually release power. And so when they come to tell Jesus, look at all we've done in your name, in other words, it's us. In other words, here's my, here's my egoic ministry, and it makes you look good. And Jesus is like, I don't care about your ministry that makes me look good. I want to have a dynamic relationship with you. So if, if you think you can live without my presence, go ahead. You're living unto yourself? Go try to find a way to get away from me. Not only that, I never even knew you. And if we think both of those things are both true and possible, then it shows that we're blind in our mindset to what who he is and what's going on here because he's literally on a subatomic level holding everything together on a molecular atomic level by the sound or the resonant frequency of his word you cannot get away from him for he is he is holding you together on a molecular level when i realized that and i realized that the the mystery of the gospel was christ in you the hope of glory I, and bill johnson says it like this you know, um, it's like, without him, we can do nothing, but you're never going to be without him again. And I just sort of like let this, this oil of the revelation of that wash over me. And suddenly I had this sense of freedom and peace and rest that I had never had. That was, that was, I would say, and this is kind of a good segue into what you asked about the glory. That was my first tangible taste of the glory of God. Because Jesus, uh, or Paul said, excuse me, David said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That was my first taste of the glory of God. And the glory and the goodness of God are synonymous. So when Moses goes to the mountain, he says to God, show me your glory. God responds and goes, I'm going to make all my goodness to pass before you. And then he says to Moses, and I'll be merciful to, merciful to who I'll be merciful, and I'll be compassionate, compassionate to who I'll be compassionate to. In other words, Moses, I'm going to be so good, it's going to freak you out. If you really want to see my glory, you're going to see a goodness that's going to offend you because you got to get this revelation. I love everybody you hate. And so I'm going to be better than you think I can be. I'm going to be more compassionate than you think I can be. And I'm not going to ask your permission. That's all wrapped in that. I'm, I can be merciful to who I'll be merciful and I'll be compassionate to who I'll be compassionate to. In other words, I'm, I'm going to be compassionate and I don't have to ask anybody's permission about it. So we get this sense of the glory of God being the goodness of God that actually offends us with, with a, a revelation of love that just, it, it embraces us in that even when we're faithless, he remains faithful, right? Even when we as prodigal sons and daughters try not to be in the family, he still remains a father. 
So uh, all of that kind of rolled into this sense of going, suddenly the fear of the Lord took on a completely different meaning to me. It was, I'm literally never going to be without you. I'm accepted and it's not my fault and it's not based on anything that I did. You initiated this reconciliation by your grace. I'm at rest in it. And what it did is it took all of my pride, all of my ego, all of my arrogant self-effort and just stripped it away. And now I had no motivation except gratitude and love. That was it. So that's my, people say, well, you know, you live in a place of consistent rest before the Lord. It's, it's a place of thanksgiving because you're always in the will of God from a posture of gratitude. In everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That's how you develop gratitude is by seeing the fact that that embrace of grace so holds everything together that getting away from him, it, it, I mean, I tell people, try. I mean, you can give it a shot, but where are you going to go? David said, I can't get away from you no matter where I go. So I, I just, I feel like there's a place of rest in that. I love, I love what you said John Bevere's quote is, because I think it's like the sense that we ever could be without God ought to actually terrify us. But the revelation of the new covenant gives us a, an assurance that, that he'll never leave us or forsake us. So there's, there's a sense of, of wow, you, you're, you're content on, I mean, or you're, you're absolutely intent on destroying every sense of unworthiness I've ever had, mm-hmm. you know, unworthiness to be in your presence, unworthiness to be called your child, all, all of that stuff. You were completely intent on stripping all that stuff away and giving me your glory as a gift, not a reward. And that, that just, I don't know, man, I just love that. But, you know, a bunch of different sides yeah. of the same coin, but you know, it's a journey. There's a bit of a journey of coming to that realization. I don't, you don't get that stuff through teaching. You get it through revelation. Teaching can bring revelation, but you get it through revelation. And uh, I'd, I'd heard teaching like that for years and years and years. Never made a dent. But one day I'm reading Psalm 139 and I felt like the Holy Spirit said, it's like a light just went on, clicked on, like, you know, mm. wow. Okay. It changed everything. Yeah. That's so good. It's that, it's that truth and tension. You know, yeah. it's, yeah. it's uh, being able to hold both. I, I think one of the things I, I think about with that is because um, I, I went through a little bit of, of that journey as well. I mean, you, you knew me about the time you were meeting me. I was really entering that journey mm-hmm. um, and I had a lot of fear of fear of man. And actually um, being around David Hogan is what what broke that. that there was a point <laughs> he, he prayed for me, didn't feel that'll, anything. That'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that changed everything. But the the thing that really hit me with that is um, the beauty and magnificence of Jesus mixed with the idea that I won't have to stand before him one day and give account of what somebody else did. I'll have to stand and give account of what I did with what he gave me. And so like that, that's what broke the fear of man is that I, that, that revelation of uh, or, or, you know, well done, yeah. my good and faithful servant. Good is yeah. because of what he did. Faithful is a response to what he did. That's and it. like, I want, I want it to be both of those. And I'm not doing the faithfulness to, to earn his love or acceptance or any of that, but it's out of response to that. I want to be seen as a, as a good steward of that. And that, yeah. that piece. And I think, I think that is the heart of what John Bevere is saying. It's like, it's not this, uh, cause fears, fear by nature is paralyzing 
And so yes. if we, if we yeah. are afraid of God, we're always going to walk in a way we're expecting punishment. And I think a lot of people, this is worth talking about because of that. I've, I've, I've seen that over and over again. Um, and because of how important it is to walk, walk with the Lord and, and maintain a, a, a line, like righteousness is right alignment. You want to walk in alignment right. with him and that's how you receive. It's like a, a pipe, you know, like if you want to receive oh. his goodness and his blessings, you want to be in alignment with him, which is primarily in your mind. Um, yeah. how we, how we align. But a lot of people are so scared because they're expecting a father that's waiting to punish them. Yes. And, uh, and that, that revelation actually probably moving out to Seattle has been the biggest for, for, for me personally has been the father really getting me to that place of just yeah. like, you know, uh, actually even a little bit before that, I remember, um, when we were preaching in Columbus and stuff and we were seeing a, uh, a move of God happen, like some pretty profound things were happening on the college campus and all that. And I remember I got to the point where regardless of how the night felt, it went, I would go home and I'd say, father, are you proud? And that, that was like one of the biggest, um, healing, trying not to cry. That was a healing place in my heart because I was always, I always, always like before that was trying to earn that, but instead it was just this more like this excitement of a childlike excitement of like, I wanted to hear what my father thought of how the night went. Yeah. And, uh, some, some of the worst nights he would say, I'm proud. And some of the best nights he'd be like, I'm proud but I didn't tell you to do that, (laughs) you know, or like, Hey, when you stepped out and did that, I didn't, I didn't actually tell you to do that. I backed you up, but I didn't tell you to do it. And it was like, it was, but it was healing because it was so, there was so much love in it. And and just, thank you for the growth that comes from correction, loving correction. He's a good dad. He does that. I love that. That's a beautiful posture. Yeah. But then I've, I've also, I think, um, a question that I'm sure you hear all the time and I've heard a lot is, you know, how do you know you're hearing the voice of God or how do I know what God's saying for my life? Like things like that. And that question, the heart of that question typically is out of a place of, I'm afraid if I do something, it's going to be the wrong thing. God's going to be upset or, you know, lift his hand off me or not back me up, you know? And I've just, I've, I want to see that eliminated. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well. Um, have you run into that a lot? Like where the fear of the Lord is much more, I'm fear of, I'm afraid of punishment. I'm afraid of him being angry at me. Right. Um, and then how do, how do you, how do you help somebody with that? Because like you said, it does typically take a revelation beyond just teaching. It has to be, the Holy Spirit has to make it real. I, I mean, I think of it in terms of, let's say with my own dad. My dad was fully capable. He was a farm kid. He grew up at a, on a on a farm in the Midwest, up in South Dakota. He was he was a, he, you know he 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 lived a hard life, and um, he was a strong man. He was fully capable of of doing some damage. You know he could do it, but because I knew his heart, I understood. I I didn't um I didn't have any fear of him on the basis of what he was capable of. I had a fear. I I had a respect and an awe and a love for him on the basis of his love not on the basis of the expectation of his wrath. It wasn't the expectation of his wrath that, that actually, you know, um, caused me to live, uh, in a way that was honoring to him. It was a, uh, it was, it was a revelation of how deeply he loved me. And, um, that was a thing that, you know, I, I mean, when it comes to, when it comes to, uh, most of our fear of God and a healthy fear of God 
is tied to an expectation of judgment or punishment, right? And when it comes to revelation about God, there's some things that are true and there are some things that are truer. Um, there are verses in the Bible that speak of, of God uh, in terms of both mercy and in terms of judgment. But the Bible tells us the order of that priority because mercy, it says mercy triumphs over judgment. Both exist, but one is a truer truth, a greater truth. And when we elevate revelations about the judgment and the wrath of God over elevation, uh, we elevate those things above revelations about his mercy or his grace, then we are building, in a sense, a, a concept that more closely reflects the law of the old covenant rather than the grace of the new. And so uh, both mercy and judgment have, have existed in the past, and you can see examples of that. The question is, what do we believe uh, is his intention for the, for the present and the future? So I really think of uh, one of the areas of education that the body of Christ needs big time in this is a revelation of the new covenant. Um, what the new covenant is, why it's better, uh, and uh, how it was created. And and because, uh, I mean, that's, that changed everything. I mean, most of, our, most of our revelation about God exists from the 1300-year period of the old covenant. Uh, but Jesus comes to demonstrate... Uh, uh, that he is the perfect representation of the father's nature. So, you know, um, you know, we need a God that looks like Jesus. Really. Uh, I, I heard a friend say a couple of nights ago that one of the things he likes to do is to sit down with atheists and ask them, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And they you know, get flustered about it. like, no, seriously, tell me about the God you don't believe in. What is the God you rejected to the point where you now have adopted an atheistic mindset? And, uh, and, and he says, as they start to describe the God they've rejected, he goes, I suddenly have this realization. I don't believe in that God either. Like, wow. You know, it's like just because a person says they're an atheist and doesn't believe in God doesn't mean that they're talking about rejecting, you know, Jesus. You know, what they're rejecting is a concept that was presented to them that they went, wow, I'm out. Right. And, uh, and that concept oftentimes looked nothing like Jesus at all. And I just think, you know, when Jesus, you know, is seen for who he truly is, wow, he just dismantles all of our concepts of God. But I also think of like the old covenant uh, priesthood, those, those, those Pharisees and uh, uh, teachers of the law who knew the old covenant and, and had added tons to it, you know, in the Talmud. Now they, they think they've got a corner market on the nature of what God is like because of the traditions handed down to them. Yet when Jesus shows up, the incarnation, God in the flesh, the word made flesh and dwelt among us is standing right in front of them. They can't even recognize him. And I feel like that, you know, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of what we just, that, that revelation of Jesus is what, what brings it all back to, you know, oh my goodness. My dad used to walk around the house what a friend we have in Jesus, he'd sing. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. In a modern vernacular, I'd say it's the difference between, and I've heard seen memes on this, so it's a, I, I can't take any credit for any quote like this, but it's such a great line. You know, if you do something wrong and and your dad's not a good person, you know, you'll be like, I'm hiding from dad, you know, but if you do something wrong and you know how loving your father is and that he, he can help in this situation, you know, the first thing you do is I got to call dad. I got to get on the phone with dad, you know? 
And I think this is the danger of sin, because when Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from a God who had never done anything worth hiding from. You know, he had never done anything pain-inducing, inflicting, whatever you want to call it. And, and yet when they sinned, it warped their perception of his goodness, so they hid from a God who would have redeemed them, you know. And so, I, man, I just like, I feel like, you know, uh, when we talk about the goodness, the grace, the fact that there's no distance or separation, people stop and think about, oh, man, that's just a sin license now. And I'm like, no, because sin will warp and twist your perception of your good, the goodness of God. It will change your heart toward the Lord. And pretty soon you'll find yourself more legalistic because of that perception of distance and separation. But that embrace of grace that holds on to us when we when we don't have the strength to hold on, you know, we're in that grip of his grace and we know that we're accepted and loved even at our absolute worst. He looks at us and says, Father, forgive us. They don't even know what they're doing. My goodness, now I have a motive to live a holy life. You know, so... Uh, I'll say like the fruit of the Holy Spirit in a person's life is a holy life. Holy Spirit, you know, he's not going to show up and bring something other than holiness. And so, uh, yeah, anyway. Man, I don't know. I'm off subject now. But there, there is no subject. So you're doing great. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, um, I, want, I wanted to switch gears a little bit uh, yeah. and go into... Um, just some of the crazy places you found yourself in. I think you have you have a really unique. Uh, I messaged you this, but I, I've never met anyone that has such an ability uh, to. It's an anointing that you have to morph into any environment you're in and be accepted, but never fit into that environment. That's in true. the same t at the same token. Uh, and it's really incredible because I think a lot of people uh, want to be able to have the anointing to morph, but they don't want to still not fit in like they want to fit in. Yeah. Um, and you've been able to fully be yourself in every environment you've been in, um, including things like the, <laughs> the Disney's church and, and some other things that we'll talk about. Um, but that will be in our next episode. So uh, this is a good point um, to end this episode. Uh, so if you want to hear that answer, you'll want to listen to the next one. If this podcast has impacted you, please share it with your friends, share it on social media, send it to your grandma, everyone who needs to hear it, um, and help us get the word out. And then it, uh, would you consider supporting the podcast? You can go to firemovement.com slash support. There you can give a one-time or monthly gift as you choose. Uh, and that just helps us continue the podcast and grow what we're doing. Uh, and send any testimonies or how this has impacted you. You can follow us on social media uh, at, uh, at EncounterFire is our Instagram handle. You can DM me or you can message us on our website, firemovement.com. So until next time, this has been the Fire Podcast.